This is the Monday, October 22nd, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, the Wayback Machine transports us back to the times that try men's souls. When Thomas Paine wrote that phrase to embody the struggle of General George Washington's beaten but not defeated army and the cause of American independence hung by a thread, a thread that was fraying fast. In their new book, Valley Forge, the number one New York Times best-selling team of Bob Drury and Tom Clavin provide a fresh look at the winter of 1777. In Valley Forge, we meet a George Washington beset by almost every threat imaginable. Disease, desertion, traitors, spies, bickering bureaucrats, and incompetent skinflints in the Continental Congress. Oh, and did I mention the combined naval and land forces of the British Empire? When Britannia ruled the waves and a quarter of the Earth's people. It's common today to call the British Empire the superpower of the day, but it really doesn't capture just how massive this empire was, where the sun never set on it, and where nobody had ever thrown them off. And in 1777, they occupy New York City and America's capital of Philadelphia which is just two dozen miles south of the shivering, often shoeless Continental Army that George Washington is expected to carry to victory, basically on spit, shoe polish, and his personality. It is a really dark moment, a really heavy moment for Washington. George Washington really stands above and shines and becomes one of the great men of history. You realize why they said he was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. And yet Valley Forge is not a story of myths and anecdotes and building people up into statues. There are no tales of chopping down cherry trees or never telling a lie. This is a very human look at not only the indispensable commander-in-chief, but the common soldiers, as well as men like Baron von Steuben, Alexander Hamilton, our old friend the Marquis de Lafayette, and infamous characters like General Charles Lee. A man so insufferable, his own doctor tried to kill him. Talk about bad bedside manner. And we also find out what Martha Washington and the women were doing in camp that year. In fact, if you look at the cover of Valley Forge, you can see Martha right there on the lower right hand. This is history, warts and all, and smallpox scars and all. Bob Drury and Tom Clavin have previously co-written The Heart of Everything That Is, The Untold Story of Red Cloud, an American legend, and Lucky 666, the impossible mission that changed the war in the Pacific. 
You've seen Bob Drury's work in the nine books he's authored, co-authored, or edited, and in places such as the New York Times, Vanity Fair, GQ, and Men's Journal, where he's a contributing editor and foreign correspondent. Tom Clavin is the author or co-author of 16 books, a 15-year veteran of the New York Times, and a contributor to top periodicals, including Manhattan Magazine, where he's the investigative features correspondent. You can visit our guests online at tomclavin.com and rfxdrury.com and check out their amazon.com author pages. Okay, now that we've scraped together some rations and our warmest rags of clothing, let's join Bob Drury and Tom Clavin as war correspondents at Valley Forge. I'm joined on the line by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin, co-authors of Valley Forge. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Dean, this is Drury. It's my pleasure. And we appreciate your time. Well, you gave me some extra time here because I had some technical glitches to go through, and I felt like I read through Valley Forge and I was wishing that those guys just had a phone or maybe even a balloon like they started using the Civil War a little bit because communications were so frustrating. So this humbled me a little bit and reminded me of something I always try to keep at the forefront of my mind. And that's not to condescend to history and not to think that I know it all or to think just because this is 2018 that we have something we can teach people in the past, certainly not somebody as iconic and accomplished as Washington. You tell this story in Valley Forge, and that idea of this technical progress reminded me of a Yogi Berra quote where he says, a restaurant is so popular that nobody goes there anymore. (laughs) And Valley Forge, that winter, it's a moment that It's very easy to say, well, I know all about it, to let it transcend reality like the cherry cheese story. It's just a a legend. And readers may think, oh, yeah, I know about that. Valley Forge, it was cold. And they all come out of nothing. And it's this great rebellion story. Maybe they confuse it with some movie or another. Maybe Rocky, it is near Philadelphia where it happens. And we don't really have the facts that go with it. Since you write as a team, how do the two of you go about breaking down the work of tackling the myths and finding the real history underlying. Bob Drury, let's start with you. All right, Dean. It's finally time, I admit it. I have pictures of Tom. (laughs) They're salacious pictures. Tom does all the research. He does all the reporting. He does all the writing. He does all the editing. And when it comes time to put a byline (laughs) on the book, I say, Tom, don't forget I have these pictures, and I make him put my byline on it. <laughs> yeah. so, I've got to see those pictures. I don't believe them myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I have no recollection. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, you were, well, never mind. We won't get into it now. I'm saving, <laughs> I'm saving it for the New York Post. Right, right. Um, anyway, to answer your question, we are, what is this, our sixth book together, Tom? We have mm-hmm, a good yes. Henry Ford kind of assembly line going. Let me give you an example, Dean. If you threw me into the Library of Congress or the National Archives or the David Library for the Revolution, I would eventually come out with what I was looking for. You might have to send in a team to find me with miners' caps. But Tom just has a knack for finding these documents that no one else has seen since they were first written. (laughs) And then if we're doing a book together where people are still alive – 
which, of course, Valley Forge is not one of them. I will do most of the interviewing, but for a book like this, Tom will dig into it. We'll sit down and talk, and we'll write kind of a, what we call a clothesline. It's an outline of where the book is going. And then after that, as Tom likes to say, you can't have four hands on the keyboard. The book has to be in one voice. So I, Drury, who you're speaking to, I do the writing. And as I write, I just pepper the chapters with queries and questions. Tom, we need more on this. We need more on the Oneida Indians that Lafayette brought down from. We need more on this. We need more on that. We need more on this. And we kind of get a handoff kind of thing going. And in the end, magically, a book appears. It's, it has to be a complicated process. And for me, I love to collaborate. I wrote a cookbook with my wife. And even that, I mean, granted, it's a married dynamic, so it's a little bit different. And it was because it was a Greek cookbook, and that's my background, not hers being Irish-Canadian. There is going to be a balance. There's going to be some lines there. Obviously, I was the one who was doing most of the researching and doing most of the writing and things. But when it's two people, you look at a working relationship like this, it's rare. It doesn't even have really a parallel in sports, maybe a defenseman pair in hockey. But you guys find each other somehow professionally and want to stick together, stick it out here through six books. How did you decide you were going to take on something that everybody thinks they know about and say, wait a minute, here's a here's a real book about it. Here's the real history that strips away a lot of the myths. Tom, I'll take this one if you don't mind, because it's such a family affair with me. Mm-hmm. Uh we were working on the heart of everything that is our red cloud book. And this was what, four or five years ago. No, it had to be more than that. Cause my son is now 21 and he was 13 or 14 at the time. And he's, his mother's French and he's been bilingual since, you know, infancy almost. And he's a dual citizen. And at one point we were at a party, a Christmas party. I think it was at my wife's mother's house. And I heard a kerfluffle in the TV room, and I saw my son, Liam Antoine is his name, with a hyphen, Liam hyphen Antoine. And he walked out, and his face was red, and I said, what's going on, son? And he said, as it turns out, my wife's brother had made a crack about the U.S. bailing France out of two world wars. And my son shot back at him, oh, yeah? If it wasn't for the Marquis de Lafayette and the French army, you'd be Canada right now. There wouldn't even be a United States. <laughs> and, and not only was I so proud of my early teen son taking on this 40-something-year-old man, but all of a sudden the light bulb went on over my head. And I said, Lafayette, during the French Revolution. What a great idea for a book. Now, as I said, we were working on The Heart of Everything That Is, our Red Cloud book, and we had already committed to our World War II book as our next project, Lucky 666. But Tom and I both agreed this is next in the queue. And as it turns out, as we were working on Lucky 666, the inestimable Sarah Val, great writer, wonderful writer, she came out with her book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, which more or less covered the territory we were looking to write about. But then Tom the clever chap that he is, said to me one day, you know, I've done a little looking into this, and I think there might be more to Valley Forge than the average American knows. And Tom, why don't you pick up the story since it's your story? Yeah, there's more than a textbook image of of a couple of guys freezing in the snow and George Washington watching a couple of guys freezing in the snow. As we started to do a little more research into it, we found that... uh, 
during that six-month encampment, there was a lot going on. There was, first of all, if the Continental Army had not survived, there probably would not have been an American Revolution after that, continued after that, and, and the resulting independence. We found a lot of well-known figures who were crisscrossing, their paths were crisscrossing during the Valley Forge encampment. We know that Benjamin Franklin and a couple of other American emissaries were trying to work out an alliance with France. Uh, we the Philadelphia had been the nation's capital, taken over by the British, what they were doing in Philadelphia during the time, skirmishes. And then, you know, for more of a focus on George Washington, you know, he had his inner circle of trusted generals and their interactions with them, Nathaniel Green, Anthony Wayne, Lord Sterling. And then we really found fascinating the story of Washington and his so-called surrogate sons, the 20-year-old Marquis de Lafayette, the 22-year-old Alexander Hamilton, the 22-year-old John Lawrence. Those relationships really fascinate us. And then, of course, right at the center of the story is you have George Washington. And we wanted to present somebody who is both a heroic figure, a dramatic figure, but also somebody, the real human George Washington, who had you know, his own insecurities, his own doubts, the anguish that he was going through. So we we really discovered that there was a lot of drama and intricacy to the story that we think most people have no idea exists. And Dean, if I may add to that, not to mention the myths and the huh moments. <laughs> the myth, for instance, uh, oh yeah, it was freezing. As Tom mentioned, a bunch of half-naked, uh, starving soldiers freezing to death. Well, as a matter of fact, that was one of the most mildest winters that Southeast Pennsylvania had seen for some time. Now, what happened was, and Washington hated this, George Washington hated this, he would much prefer an Arctic winter camp like he had in Marstown the preceding winter and the subsequent winter because he could train in that cold. But with the warm cold, warm cold, warm cold, he'd get these hellacious snowstorms falling in. Then an ice storm would encrust Valley Forge, and then two days later, there'd be this warm, driving 38-degree rain that would overflow the haphazardly dug latrines. The horses who were dropping dead of starvation, they were scavenged for whatever meat there was, and then they were buried because the ground was frozen, and they were buried maybe a foot deep. They would be uncovered, and what we found, we did so much contemporaneous research. We read so many journals and diaries and papers. And the running theme throughout the whole thing was how much the camp stunk. It stunk from all this effluvium coming up from the ground. It hung over the camp like an illness. Another myth. Well, the previous falls, Pennsylvania campaign, as it came to be known, it had denuded all the farms in Chester County and Delaware County and neighboring Montgomery and Bucks counties. There was no more food left. This is not true. There was plenty of food. It was one of the best harvests of 1777. But... All the merchants and all the farmers much preferred smuggling their food, their goods, their poultry, their cattle, their sheep, their hooves, they called them at the time, hooves, their corn, their wheat, into Philadelphia because the British were paying pounds sterling, sometimes even gold, whereas all Washington could offer was the worthless script issued by the Continental Army. And this is not a myth so much. It's one of those huh moments, huh moments I mentioned. Did you know there were 750 black soldiers at Valley Forge? Huh. Nobody seems to know that. These were all freemen. Some of them had been born freemen, of course, in the North. Others had been freed slaves. 
by New England owners in mostly Rhode Island. Rhode Island put up the first freed slave battalion, and they fought ferociously. And so the other New England states started doing the same thing, and the deal was you fight for the duration, and you're free. Now, they were paid the same as the whites, but this was the last time that white Americans fought alongside black Americans until the Korean War. And yes, there were black Americans fighting in World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, but they were all segregated. This was the last integrated war. So we started finding all these kind of wow moments, and we realized we had a book. But the biggest wow moment, I think, was that, as Tom mentioned, Washington, this father figure, the father of our country, which, by the way, that phrase was coined during the winter at Valley Forge by a German-language newspaper in Pennsylvania, not only did he have the weight of the world on him that winter, but he was also fighting a two-front war. He was fighting militarily against King George III's Redcoats, and he was fighting a political war against members of faction of Congress, the Continental Congress, led by the New Englanders and John Adams, who wanted to depose him, who wanted to usurp him as commander-in-chief and replace him with someone else. There are many of those moments. I can testify to that because I read the book on my morning commute on New Jersey Transit and coming home, and I'll after dealing with words and things all day, and the sign of a good book is one that I still want to read, even when my eyes hurt from looking at the computer all day. <laughs> and Valley Forge was like that because I wanted to be there. Who doesn't want to be at these great historical moments? If you love history, that's what you want. And I don't want something that's just a colorful pastel photo and, or in this case, not a photo, but a painting, for example, like the painting on the cover of the book, that's painted by Tompkins Harrison Madison in 1854. So that's 75 years after that fateful winter. And we know even today that's about as far away as we are from the lucky 666 era from World War II. We know today, we, even though we have pictures and things, we don't know what it was like back then. And we have an idealized view of it. We have a view that's come down to us from people and been edited just by human beings, not wanting to tell their story necessarily all the time. And we work through it. So I wanted to ask about that painting there that we have the General Washington. He looks resplendent there. I guess that's probably his horse in the background there, or one of his horses. Smiling horse? (laughs) Smiling horse, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Though this is what we get, right? So this is is a kind of of a painting of history, right? You get a happy horse, and Martha Washington's there in the lower right. She was actually there. But what does that painting tell us? What did they show then, 75 years later, And what have we added to this story over the past now way more than 75 years, you know, three, four times that. And what do you bring us here in Valley Forge that strips away all of those centuries of an idealized version and little colorful pictures like this and stories that weren't the truth? What was it? What does this cover, this beautiful cover of Valley Forge have to tell us about the truth? Tom, before I let you answer that, because you'll be much better answering that than me, can I compliment Dean on slipping in the reference to Lucky 666. I really like that thing. <laughs> That's professional. That's what people listen to. Plug these yeah. books. You know, to talk about the cover, I remember when Simon Schuster, the folks there, the design team, first showed us their idea for the cover. And I admit to being taken aback a bit because the image, again, that we mostly know about Valley Forge is there are some standard images, illustrations that show like Washington and Lafayette side by side on a horse and 
riding past sentries and Washington on a horse watching his bedraggled half-clothed men staggering into Valley Forge on December 19, 1777. So I really did expect that we were going to, you know, what would be the best look at one of these standard Valley Forge images. I didn't know this painting existed until it was shown to me. And, hmm. and it was to me, it was startling because of the first thing that occurred to me is that it's done in something like a biblical style. And I think that's, you know, addresses your question about the cover, is that 75 years after the event, it was showing the almost religious reverence that the American population had for George Washington as their first president. And remember, if, if this was painted in 1852, you're talking about six years before Lincoln's elected, probably in the interim, the only president who maybe would be considered a great popular president, you maybe would say Andrew Jackson. So here this, you have this, this, this 1850s cultural elite, let's say, because you, you're run-of-the-mill people probably not was viewing this painting at a museum anywhere. But they were looking back at George Washington in this very idolatrous way. And that stopped me for a bit because I hadn't associated this painting with Valley Forge before. And there are a couple of misrepresentations in it in the sense that, you know, it does show Martha Washington as if she's administering to the sick troops, which didn't really happen. I mean, a lot of props to Martha Washington for showing up and she and George had, were genuinely devoted to each other. But he was not about to let his wife go into these huts where guys were dying of cholera and smallpox and things like that. So, uh, And yet you have a smiling horse. But then it, it really, to me anyway, it started to grow on me as, first of all, unique, a very unique depiction of the Valley Forge experience. And also, I like the idea of having this reverence for Washington being displayed on the cover, because I think, to me, one of the things that comes out of the book is to either reacquaint readers or maybe emphasize to them for the first time that Washington was an extremely special person in so many ways, militarily, uh, spiritually, psychologically, physically. He was always the tallest man in the room. To me, anyway, I wanted to challenge readers who were seeing this on a bookshelf and saying, go ahead, you know, read this book and see what, see what you think of George Washington when you're done. So I came to see the cover as, as something of a challenge to people to grab it and embrace George Washington, or you don't agree with our depiction of him, but, but our depiction of him is somebody who's not by far not perfect, but extraordinary man. I would only add to that, Dean, that I agree with everything Tom said, and I, I had the same feelings when I first saw the painting, and I eventually came around to it because I saw what the design team was trying to do. But in a sense, depicts Washington and his inner circle, so to speak, and their shared core values. Tom and I feel that they were part of the most productive generation of statesmen in the history of the United States. And we say this, of course, well aware of Lincoln's team of rivals and FDR's kitchen cabinet, but we feel, and also we emphasize their youth. They were so young. Even his, his veteran generals, Nathaniel Green and Anthony Wayne, later became known as Mad Anthony Wayne, they were only in their 30s. His core of aides de camp, Tom already mentioned how young Hamilton and Lafayette and John Lawrence were. Lawrence, by the way, the, the state, the founding father you never heard of. That we feel that if these men had not come together at this time, as my son said, you know, low those many years ago to, to his step uncle, there would be no United States. And in that sense, the idealized cover of the book 
kind of depicts what really doesn't depict what really happened literally, but depicts what happened spiritually and emotionally. You mentioned Washington's popularity and having that big gulf between Lincoln, who didn't enjoy that widespread acclaim when he was elected and when he was in office. It's after he gets assassinated, he does. Mm. I thought other than Jackson, maybe the only other president that was all that popular back then was James Monroe. Then I'm thinking, okay, but even he was associated with Washington at Trenton, and they thought he kind of looked like him. And even when he goes, the air of good feelings is going to get reelected. And there's one faithless elector that says, I'm going to cast my vote for John Quincy Adams because only the great George Washington should be elected unanimously by the Electoral College. Mm. So even then, as I'm trying to think about a Washington, you say, what did he mean to those people at the time as they're creating his legend and embracing it, the people that knew him best? And then they're imbuing him with some things like we love to do with historic figures. I often say that, isn't it amazing that historical figures that are dead always agree with us? <laughs> I never hear a politician say, well, you know, Winston Churchill, he he really would think I was wrong about this, but I'm doing it anyway. We only reach back because we want to think we would have had, you know, gone for beers with them. We'd be rooting for the same team on Sundays, and <laughs> we want them to be our friends if they're someone we admire like Washington. Well, in this case, you mentioned the biblical style of this cover of Valley Forge. This is something that people constantly want to put on Washington. We want to look at him and we want to see him as a figure, if we are people of faith, that had great faith, that shared our faith, whatever it is. This is the reason why Muslim Americans talk about Thomas Jefferson owning a copy of the Koran, right? They want to have a little piece of him and say, hey, he was in he was in our holy book and looked through it. So we have a little bit of these people in us. We feel a little connection. This is one thing where we all have heard the story, many of us have, of Washington kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge, this very moving moment. Mm -hmm. It's a similar story to one told about Lincoln. It's then recycled for William McKinley after he's dead. Neither of these things happen. In fact, in McKinley's case, you mentioned Sarah Val. She cites him in Assassination Vacation, this story of McKinley on his <laughs> knees in prayer. And it, it clearly didn't happen, but it's out there as sort of a myth. He, for instance, they say McKinley used the term Christianize, which he wouldn't have used at the time. It just wasn't in popular use, and he knew the Philippines were already quite Catholic. In George Washington Memorial Park in Paramus, New Jersey, there's a statue of Washington in prayer, and it's beautiful. It's very moving. And your co-author here, Bob Drury, told me, Tom, that you have an excellent way to describe it. And as I read Valley Forge and came across that passage, I was thinking very much of that statue. And what that moment, that mythical depiction, but what does it tell us that's the real history about Washington and about how he felt as he has the world on his shoulders and maybe nowhere else to turn but up? Well, with that painting that was done, you know... Bob and I debated whether or not we were going to include that painting of Washington kneeling in the snow in our section, and also whether we were going to write about it. We even had considered at one point making it the prologue of the book, if I remember correctly. We had several conversations about this, and for those who aren't familiar, there there is a fairly well-known painting that shows Washington in the snow at night. He's on his knees. He's gazing towards the heavens, and he's pleading for help from God. And we're 95% certain from the research and everything we looked at, and also reading a couple of other writers who are really good scholars uh, about Washington, Ron Chernow being one, for example, that this did not happen. I mean, there's it, always that small percentage it really did, but mostly you trace how the story got started and how it got passed along. It didn't happen. However, 
I think that even if it didn't happen, it does represent, we think, Washington's state of mind at that particular time, in the middle of February, when everything that could go wrong has pretty much gone wrong. They're constantly running out of food. There are each day dozens. You know, there were two thousand men who died at Valley Forge from starvation and exposure and disease. So they're dying by the dozens in this February, worst part of the winter. And he's dealing with, as Bob mentioned before, you know, this political effort to to usurp him, to replace him as commander in chief. In addition to wondering that at any moment the British are going to say, you know what? Why don't we launch an attack? Why don't we see if we can catch them by surprise? And he has so few men fit for duty. He knows that they, the, the battle, they had no chance of winning if that would have happened. And he's, he's alone in a lot of ways. The Continental Congress has virtually ceased to exist except as a bunch of squabbling conspirators. So he, he's, he's out of options. You know? he's, so even if he literally did not go out one night and kneel in the snow and pray to the heavens, we can see that painting representing the depth, as close to despair as Washington came, was at that particular time, and that painting represents that, even though it, it literally did not happen. Uh, he says it so much better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> you you tipped me off on that one, I have to confess. You said, oh yeah, ask, ask Tom about that, he's much better. But when I look at the statue, you want to find something good about it. People sometimes have good intention about things, but then later it ends up in real history. For instance, the iconic painting of George Washington that's in the White House that Dolly Madison saves from fire. That's a copy. Mm. And yet it, it's become the stuff of history. It's a copy of a painting that he made. You know, he uses uh, United States on one of the books, kick the letters A&T in states, because that's the sign that it's, uh, that it's not the original. Mm. And yet that one has the history in it because it's become part of a story in its own right. Washington, you said you don't describe him as a statue here, that you wanted to bring the real man alive for us. You say he had a fragile psyche. Talk about a ha huh moment. That's not a phrase that leaps to mind when we think of Washington, when we've all grown up seeing these statues of the great general, looking at him on every dollar bill stern there. I mean, he, you hear these stories of him, for instance, you know, when soldiers are squabbling and he grabs two of them by the throat and lifts them off the ground and holds them stiff arm. And I, I believe that's uh, up in Boston about the siege of Boston. And I, I love that story because he's such a tough guy. And they say, you know, every now and then he would shake one of the soldiers to make sure they were paying attention as if, you know, somehow your mind might wander while you're being held by the throat by the massive George Washington. But that's the image you have of him to think of him as fragile, to think of him as not knowing who he can trust beset on all sides by enemies, foreign and domestic. He's got to be wondering, well, what, what's going on? Do these people even want to win the revolution? I can't get anything from Congress. What inspiration do you hope readers will take from the fact that a man who is as human and flawed as any one of us managed to overcome his enemies and all of these things stacked against him, not to mention those in his own constitution, his own frailty, to overcome this, to keep those men with him? I can't imagine... Being one of those men saying, I want to stick with Washington, but thousands of them do, even as their comrades are dying and fleeing all around them. What do you hope we learn about how we can be more Washington-like? Never succumb. That's mm. what it comes down to. I mean, he was, during now, those six months in 17, the winter of 1777, 1778, he and his aides-de-camp and his... There was 18 people uh, living in a small farmhouse, a three-bedroom farmhouse. And these men, the Hamiltons, the, the Lafayettes, the Greens, the Anthony Waynes, they saw the weight 
on this man's shoulders. Washington would never show his true feelings in front of the troops, except once. And we might get to that at the Battle of Mama Courthouse. But he was always the Washington we kind of had, the iconic Washington who is in our paintings. That's how he presented himself to the troops. But his inner circle saw him. They saw the doubts that he had. They, the hell, he dictated the doubts that he had. I mean, I read nearly 2,000 of Washington's, I was going to say everything he wrote, but it was mostly everything he dictated, between July 1st, 1777 and July 15th, 1778. And of course, in his general orders and public proclamations and his correspondence to, most of his correspondence with the Continental Congress, he is the Washington we know, the guy that's staring back at you from the dollar bill. But in his personal letters to his adoptive son, Jackie Custis, Martha Custis's uh, son, to his, to his brother, to his close friends in Virginia, the doubts that come through are true and real and heavy. But there is also a sense that no matter what they do to me, I am not giving up. I am not in today's vernacular, I am not quitting. They might want me out, or they're going to have to carry me out. Very Spartan, in a, in a way. I am going to see this through. And I think a lot of that was because, I know it sounds like a cliche, but he really did believe in the cause of liberty. He believed in the cause of the United States. And that belief emanated. It emanated through those who stuck it out with him at Valley Forge. Those misbegotten, forgotten, starving, naked troops. And, and, Dean, let me say something. When we talk about naked troops, we're not talking metaphorically. Foreign officers who came to Valley Forge to either volunteer their services to the cause of the United States or to observe, they were shocked. They would approach Valley Forge and there would be sentries literally naked in standing in the snow or the freezing mud with this ratty blanket draped around their, their shoulders, standing on their hats because they were barefoot. They were trying to keep their feet warm. And these are the men who looked at Washington and said, he is willing me to fight this revolution. And so, in that case, I guess we do come full circle to the iconic Washington we all see staring at the $1 bill. He's worthy of it. I mean, we all know the things we hear, they're negative about him. We all know that he had a plantation. We all know we wish he didn't wait till his death, or rather Martha's death, which wasn't wasn't too great a legacy to live to leave her. You know, kind of a bad incentive for uh, the slaves to do away with him as they did James Madison's father. But it's the kind of thing where he is flawed and we are all flawed. And I feel like the right way to look at a historical figure like Washington is it's the giants of old. There's a song from Winston Churchill's childhood, his favorite song. And this is exactly what you're talking about here, where he doesn't give up in World War II. And it's all about the giants of old and how they were never lame or stiff or sore. They threw to a thousand yards or more. And they're just awesome. And we are all just in a pygmy mold is the words they use. And then the last line, the one that he went back to Howard during the war and requested that they sing for him because they'd given up on it, was, I think it's all 
basically a fake story about how good they were because all of we, whoever we be, come up to the giants of old we see. Now, that's borderline sacrilegious. I feel foolish saying it because I'm no Washington. I'm not going to do what he did. I, you know, if the if it's a little chilly, I'm putting on a sweater, never mind standing on my hat in the middle of a snowstorm. But Washington, the purpose of having people in history that were flawed is we can say, hey, I'm flawed too, so I don't get off. I've got to do my part to help us form that more perfect union, to help fight for liberty. I may never have to sit and eat as chapter 17 of Valley Forge is titled Fire Cakes and Cold Water. You can imagine just, just if listeners are hearing that, what that would involve, what what kind of food you're eating, barely anything, just some some dough that's cooked on a rock with ash in it. But it encourages us to be better people, to try to see what we can do better. And if we think Washington had flaws and when we see he made mistakes, it makes me feel reading Valley Forge that, hey, I want to avoid those mistakes. I want to I always act like history is watching me a little bit. And you write here that it might not have been the coldest winter of the revolution, but, quote, the conditions, however, may have been the most harsh, exasperated as they were by the near complete dearth of food and clothing. Why do they stay? What makes them suffer all of these privations and stick with Washington? Because I wonder if it's something we can really relate to. Maybe we'll never be able to. But when our moment comes, again, with that theme, I want to be ready for it. So why do they stay? Well, I think it should be pointed out that a lot didn't. Many of them didn't, because we want to make sure that people understand the extreme jeopardy the Continental Army was in, and that, you know, as Washington famously wrote to the Continental Congress that he expected the army uh, or anticipated they would dissolve or disperse because their situation got so desperate. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of officers who resigned their commissions because they couldn't take it anymore or they realized this could go on forever or in a lost cause. And we've got, well, we've got families back in Vermont and New Hampshire to take care of. There were you know, hundreds and hundreds of men who deserted during the Valley Forge encampment. And many of them got away. But it's also true that some of them were caught and brought back, and there were hangings that went on. Washington had to approve these executions. One could say the reason why some of these men stayed is the uh, there was some impact of, of the harsh discipline that was available, that they'd be flogged or be hung if you were unsuccessful in, in trying to desert. I think people who read the book might have different answers for this. I mean, my thinking is that George Washington was such a charismatic and visceral leader. He was such a figure. You say a father figure, you know, father of his country, as Bob mentioned before, was coined during Valley Forge. He was somebody who the troops were familiar with. He had been the commander in chief since, I think, 1775. You know, it wasn't like with the Union Army in the Civil War that every time he turned around, there was a new commander in chief. Washington was the commander in chief. He was the chief military officer of the United States. So I think there was that kind of reverence for him. But I think, as Bob alluded to before, the cause of liberty burned very bright in the breast of George Washington. The men knew that, and they either they either shared that belief with him or they respected it, they understood it, and they wanted to be part of it. So they did. I mean, there had to be some men down to the lowliest private who also believed in the cause of liberty. But I, I really think a lot of it was the personal loyalty to Washington. They knew he cared deeply about them, and they cared deeply about him, and he he was not the iconic figure yet, I don't think, that he, he became. But I think that he was somebody who they, they, they had enormous respect for, maybe not affection, you know, because as Bob said, he was, he was not somebody to show his emotion. There probably was some affection, but I think it was just, I, I would use the word kind of a reverence, which you know, goes back to what we were talking about with the cover. You know, I think that he was a revered figure, and thankfully, the majority of his troops did not want to abandon him and abandon the cause. 
Dean, I'll just make two comments on, on what Tom said. They're kind of footnotes in a way. One is that we dug up the diaries of not many of the enlisted men kept diaries or journals or wrote letters. Most of them were illiterate. But this, what he was 16 when he enlisted, Private Joseph Plum Martin. When Tom mentioned privates, all I could think of was, was it, it was either the Thanksgiving that Congress declared for the victory at Saratoga or it was Christmas. And he said, we were served a wonderful holiday dinner of lamb stew and carrots and onions and cabbage without the lamb stew, the carrots, the onions, or the cabbage. Instead, what they were given was a gill of vinegar to keep scurvy away and a gill of rice. So that was the private recollection. And of course, Plum Martin stuck it out. You mentioned this reverence for Washington. It makes the fact that he goes back to his farm after the war, but then after two terms as president, makes it even more impressive that he does it. He starts this trend of the two terms and of going back and of you know what he thinks is fitting for a republic. And so we just assume, oh, okay, he did what we do. The reason that presidents do it, that we don't have a king, is because of that respect he had. And these men growing up, they would have grown up in an era where there were kings, where you were loyal to your person that was divine right-inspired leader. And so the fact that he goes back later, to me, is even more impressive. Like, I could see, now as I'm thinking about this, why those guys stuck with him. That was something that was bred into them. They weren't bred to to question. He was trying to make that. He's making all this stuff new, as he says, each step he takes. He's, he's, writing, he's writing history. He's writing how it's going to be done. So that impresses me even more about him, that he doesn't use those men. He doesn't just treat them like, well, hey, you're cast-offs. Maybe because he was treated like that by the British when he was serving under British command. He feels like he, he doesn't want to be like that. I think he absorbs a lot of those lessons. And you read all about it in Valley Forge, and you say, wow, I get a new picture of the guy. The guy I thought I knew, even as somebody who reads a ton of histories and I've read bios on Washington, you learn new things when you look at him through the lens that you've given us here in the book. Let me put that into human terms. One it was an evening in the 1790s. I don't have the exact year. And it was, well, of course, long after George Washington has resigned. He's still president, but he resigned as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army in 1783. And he had his farewell dinner with his officers in Francis Tavern in lower Manhattan. And so now he's president, and he's back in New York, and he's at Francis, and he's having a glass of Madeira. And the proprietor places a $3 plate of shad in front of him. Tells him, President Washington, it's on the house. Washington just blanches. He sends it back to the kitchen and he says, it shall never be said that the president indulges in such luxuries. <laughs> Can you imagine any politician from either party doing and saying that today? You feel entitled. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is everything you were just talking about summed up in a single anecdote, if you ask me. The same thing when he goes and does his tour. There was a book, George Washington's Journey, that I also did, also from Simon & Schuster. Folks will find the interview in the archives. But when he goes on that journey and he says, I'm going to just, I'm going to stay in hotels, basically. They didn't have hotels as we would think of them. But he didn't want to show favor. So he wasn't going to stay with the powerful man in town or the rich person in town or the mayor of the town. He was always conscious of that. It must have been exhausting for him to always try to be conscious of not taking that little easier way because he wanted to, he believed in it. You said he believed in the cause of liberty. 
He really makes it his life. He embodies it. That's why he goes in that uncomfortable tour. He almost dies a couple of times, as he as he seems to all the time. You know, it, it, he's a hard guy to kill or hard, hard guy to die, not for lack of of trying. But he really feels he should embody that life. He should really be the government of the United States, take it to the people in those days. And not be somebody who says, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take that on the house or just get up without paying and walk out the door. We've all heard those stories. And he doesn't do that. Avoiding the regal path. Yeah. And it's important, too, that you had mentioned, Dean, about uh, Washington going back to his farm, basically, after he's president of the United States. One of the most remarkable things that Washington did is that when he was approaching the end of his second term, many people were coming up to him and saying, you must continue as president. And even then, even after two terms, would think there would be a majority of people who would vote against Washington. No, he would have, if he if he had said, "I'm going to go for a third term," I don't think anybody doubts he would have gotten it. But he he made a point of saying, I mean, aside from he had to be tired, he wanted to go home, but he made a point of saying he was afraid if he dies in office, he's going to set a bad precedent that it would be like a monarchy. You know, you're king and you don't, you you're king until you die in office, and then you're replaced. And it's exactly what he didn't want to do. So once again, he's He's showing some restraint and some self-sacrifice and the greater good. And I think that's a big part of what we wanted to show, the kind of Washington we wanted to show in our book, Valley Forge, that his mind was on the greater good. You're enjoying my chat with Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. They're co-authors of this book with so many ha and wow moments that I really enjoyed so much. You can probably all hear it in my voice. That book is Valley Forge. You can visit our guests at their Amazon author pages at Amazon.com or at TomClavin.com and RFXDrury.com. In a starred review, Publishers Weekly writes of Valley Forge, quote, This gripping panoramic account of the Continental Army's 1777 to 1778 winter encampment at Valley Forge charts in lively language the decisions that allowed the American Revolution to survive. Gentlemen, I want to focus on that word decisions. One of the reasons we read history, as I mentioned earlier, is to learn how to improve ourselves so that we make the right call when our moment of destiny comes. General Washington cared about that too, and he wrote down his famous rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. That figure you talked about that's so revered and so up on the horse that keeps away from being a backslapper with his men, when it comes our times to make those crucial decisions in our lives, what do you hope we'll learn from the man we see here in Valley Forge? We see a Washington who's at his very lowest, almost a comical number of things arrayed against him. There are so many choices, large and small, he has to make, and no matter how small some of those are, any single wrong choice could end up dooming the revolution and costing him his neck, literally. What do you hope that readers will take from the example of this Washington in Valley Forge when it comes time to make decisions? Dean, this is Drury, and I'll be succinct in my answer. Uh, The founders of this country, George Washington foremost among them, were determined not to follow the contemporaneous European model of transactional morality, the might-makes-right theory of government. They had a novel idea, George Washington once again foremost among them, that thinking itself and arguing about defending their thoughts, defending their ideals, was the only form, the ideal form of political engagement. And I hope that any readers of Valley Forge 
come away with the idea that this is how our country was founded. I wanted to mention General Charles Lee because this is one of the domestic problems faced by Washington. He calls in Washington, does at one point a damn poltroon. In fact, that's in another one of your chapter headings in Valley Forge. That's at the Battle of Monmouth, this 100-degree day. I've attended that reenactment in New Jersey, and it's a key moment, and it's really a fun thing, a fun day out for people to go to. There's also a big statue there of General von Steuben, who we'll get to in a second. He's almost Comical, though, is General Charles Lee. I'm sure he didn't seem funny at the time or very comical that there's that anecdote you have in Valley Forge about his own doctor tries to kill him. So that tells you a little bit about what a pain in the ass that guy was. Blister, a blister of a man, I think we call yeah. it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, he, he needed to be lanced, uh, I would say, uh, rather literally. They still ran people out on the rails in those days, on a rail. So you wonder, how did this guy stick? I mean, we're reading the book here, and we're finding all the all the things he's doing and then conspiring with the enemy, which we don't find out till almost the eve of the Civil War, the American Civil War. How did that guy stick around? Because I reading about him in Valley Forge, I think people will find him a really snidely whiplash-type guy. But he's on Washington's side, and Washington can't afford to just, you know, march him into, into the Delaware River. So he's got to do something. How does that guy stick around? Well, Washington did not have a lot of generals who were, had military training and military experience. And so Charles Lee was one of the few. He, he was British-born, and he, he had served in Europe with, with the British Army. And most of Washington generals were, were people that uh, were maybe were intelligent people or maybe had personal courage. But there was no such thing at the time as, I mean, there, there was something called West Point. But, you know, we didn't have the academies like we have today that trained officers so when Charles Lee came down on the side of the American rebellion, uh, as opposed to siding with the British when the Declaration of Independence was published, Washington almost had no choice but to embrace him to some extent, because he was an experienced general. In retrospect, it's probably a lucky thing that Charles Lee was taken by the British and made a POW for something like 18 months, 16 to 18 months during the Revolutionary War, because it probably took him off the table in the sense that he couldn't do any harm to the American cause when he wasn't <laughs> command, commanding troops. You know, I mean, he, he couldn't in the sense that, as you mentioned in your question, that, that he, was, he was sort of like colluding with the British and, and, and telling them about things from the American point of view that might be of useful intelligence, but as he enjoyed this very comfortable uh, imprisonment. But he was released, I believe he rejoined the Continental Army in May of 1778, only a month or so before the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. When he came back, I mean, Washington initially seemed happy to see him or was glad to have him back. He had experience, and, and he had been a general, and there might be, and he, he, Washington believed he was an intelligent guy, probably not ex- realizing or accepting that Lee was, was also one of those people who was after his job. That's how he sort of hung around. Now, of course, the real test came during the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. Lee failed miserably. And it was at that point that Washington, you know, called him a damn poltroon for, for ordering this retreat when the battle had hardly been joined. Already Lee was giving up. He said, oh, boy, you know, they're shooting at us. Let's retreat. We can't win. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, it is, it is kind of comical. I mean, it's kind of comical, but also could have been an utter disaster. And the, the revolution might well have ended right there if, if the British Army had rolled up the Continental Army and defeated them so badly or even captured all or most of them, including General Washington. It's hard to imagine there would have been a revolution that would have continued after that. So Lee, Lee is, yes, worthy of, of a couple of laughs, 
but he's also somebody that that, that uh, when you read that when you read the book Valley Forge, you see this was almost the guy that cost us the war. Yeah, it's funny now, but not at the time. Dean, let me add something here to playing off on what Tom said about how the the revolution very well could have ended at any time during Valley Forge. While we were putting this book together, we friendly arguments with fellow historians, Revolutionary War experts, so to speak. And, you know, of course, the contention in our book is that Valley Forge was the turning point of the American Revolution. And we found people, respected people, who would say, no, 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 no. Are you kidding me? It was Trenton. It was Trenton the Christmas before. That was the turning point. No, 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 no. It was Gates' victory at Saratoga over gentleman Johnny Burgoyne's British Army. That was the turning point. No, 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 no. It was when the French got into the war. Nope, nope, sorry. It was Yorktown when we trapped Cornwallis at the edge of this peninsula. And so Tom and I actually talked about, okay, listen, when we go out on the road, we're going to have to answer these questions (laughs) until out of the blue. We do not know Joseph Ellis. He does not know us other than our writing. Of course, he is a the Pulitzer-winning biographer of George Washington. He won the National Book Award for, I think it was, was it 1776 or his book on Jefferson. This is the key American historian of the American Revolution. And he wrote us a blurb that says, Valley Forge was the existential moment in the war for independence when the direction of American history hung in the balance. So Tom and I just decided if we run into anybody arguing with us on the road and say, hey, you know what, take it up with Joe Ellis. <laughs> it's right. not here's our problem, take it up with Joe here's Ellis. His, here's his number, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's on the dust jacket on the back. I can testify to that right it at is. the top. And I, I thought yeah. the same thing because that word existential threat, existential moment, I, I say sometimes as the book falls down, I'd like to ask some people just real quick, like, tell me what that means, because it has right in there the word existence, right? And I think it's just become a little bit of a buzzword for things. A threat to the existence of America is what is going on here between the covers of Valley Forge. It's a real threat. It's not just, well, somebody wins some office that we don't like in any of the past 200 plus years. Tom Clancy, the famous fiction writer, called it a bloody nose on 9-11. He said, but you don't die from a bloody nose. Mm-hmm. America was not going to fold up camp. I don't know how Washington, I mean, he was he was a tall guy. You know, you think, well, maybe he really was 10 feet tall, and then all that weight smushed him down to being the, mm-hmm. the mere six foot three he actually was. Because there was a lot riding on him at that time. And it really was that existential moment where, as you said, if they'd come out of Philadelphia and just decided to give a hard punch, it would have been impossible to block it. Well, you know, John Adams said, John Adams was, all the New Englanders, they were not really George Washington fans. They were the firebrands who had started the revolution, but they realized at the time, if we're going to take on the strongest empire in the world, we need Virginia. We need the colony of Virginia on our side. So Washington, of course, had fought for the British militia during the French and Indian War, and that's when they decided to make him commander-in-chief. But Adams and Sam Adams and... James Lowell, they all harbored this suspicion of Washington, kind of a country bumpkinish, Virginia gentry, fox hunting kind of guy. And Adams at one point quipped, you know, we only made him commander in chief because he's the tallest man into any room he walks into. <laughs> yeah, no, not bitter that John Adams at all. In vain, yeah, worried about his little no. short height. I well, mean, he was, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you know anything about Adams, you know he was he was a brilliant man. 
but he was one cranky son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. So. They're the ones whose words endure. So thank God for the, for him and for all the Adams is really writing things down because he got on his wrong side. They were going to be the ones that had the final word and yet they're very fair about it. Can you imagine standing there with George Washington? I mean, it'd be like if you were a guy playing a weekend beer hockey league and suddenly you're going to be a center with Wayne Gretzky on the same team. It would just, the guy might not even want to talk to you. And that's how, how he was. So I love that in Valley Forge. We really get to see that these were real people. They weren't pulling all in the same direction. Quite the opposite. You end the book by writing, The world may have been astonished that the resilience shown by the Continental Army across the winter of 1777 to 1778 would culminate in the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. Washington knew better. Baron Frederick Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben holds a special place in this reader's heart. I grew up not far from his house. It's the only house that is still standing that he lived in, in Hackensack, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I've lived to see the junkyard where my dad used to pick up parts expand now. It's a nice green lawn, so it's very much mm-hmm. restored there to a nice historic park. General Steuben is the one here who gives them that training that they need, much of it. He's the one who tells them, don't go to the bathroom where you eat to dig some holes and cover them up so you're not getting all this disease and stuff. He's cast right there in bronze at Monmouth Courthouse, the battlefield where they do some of these reenactments. What do you hope readers will learn in Valley Forge about his effort to whip those Continentals into shape? What a cool guy he was. After, of course, George Washington, who is the star, so to speak, of Valley Forge and uh, emotionally, physically, intellectually, politically, the star of Valley Forge, and of course my favorite character, the Baron Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben, von Steuben to you and me. (laughs) He is my favorite secondary protagonist. I mean, this was a Falstaffian character. He he arrived in Valley Forge in late February of 1778 in a sleigh adorned with yeah. 24 jingle bells <laughs> yeah. pulled by a team of coal black Percheron horses that he had purchased in France just to make a good entrance. And of course, he purchased them on borrowed money because he was flat broke. And in his lap, he had a big silk jacket on and two giant horse pistols in his holsters and in his lap. He was a portly man, and he was no youngster. He was in his mid-40s and double chin, and he had his his pocket greyhound Azor in his lap. And in his wake was his train of assistants and aides-de-camp and translators and and stenographers. He even brought a French chef with him to Valley Forge. And as a footnote, the guy quit after 36 hours of seeing the conditions there. (laughs) But he also arrived in Valley Forge with a resume more doctored up than the Mayo Clinic. (laughs) What happened was von Steuben had served in Frederick the Great's Prussian army, which, of course, was the most... Frederick the Great himself was the most renowned war leader in in the Western world, and his army was the most renowned army in the Western world. It was a small army. Prussia was a small country. In fact, they used to joke that Frederick the Great led an army with a country as opposed to a country with an army. But von Steuben, like all of Frederick the Great's officers, he had risen to the rank of captain. He lived with the enlisted men for the first six years of his military service. And afterwards, 
trained with them, got down into the muck and mire. Frederick the Great did the same thing. He would doff his greatcoat. He would not wear a general's uniform. He wore, would wear an enlisted man's uniform, and he would drill with his soldiers. Von Steuben learned this. So when Von Steuben, a kind of soldier of fortune, there's no wars going on in Europe, he rolls into Paris, wangles an invitation to interview with Benjamin Franklin and Franklin's associate Silas Dean. And much of the wangling was done by the French foreign minister, uh, the Count de Vergin, who had came, the boy king, Louis Sixteenth here at the time. And Vergin realized this is what the Continental Army needs. They are a disparate group of militias. They need someone to turn them into a professional army. So at the time, Franklin, Silas Dean, hey, you know, Washington has sent us so many letters. Don't be sending me any more of these predominantly French, I must say. I love this word, popinjays. In other words, <laughs> these deadbeats who would come over and show up, and they would have no English, and they would immediately expect to be awarded a, a general sash in the Continental Army. And Washington is bombarding Franklin with these letters. I know we need the French in the war, but please don't send me any more of these people. But after several interviews with von Steuben, Franklin and Dean, Silas Dean, they realized this guy's the real deal. This guy knows what he's doing. This is the guy we need to train the Continental Army. But he's only, he was only a captain in the Prussian Army. How are we going to square this? I mean, we've been sending over nothing but generals. So with the help of the Count de Vergen, suddenly von Steuben's captain's bars disappear and they're replaced by the stars of a general. And he becomes, he was not only not only a general in the Prussian army, but he was Frederick's the Great, uh, Frederick the Great's uh, inspector general and his chief aide-de-camp for over a decade. This is all BS. <laughs> <laughs> so von Steuben shows up at Valley Forge, as I said, looking like, like one of the popinjays Washington doesn't want. But Washington, of course, knows about Frederick the Great's reputation, and he's happy to have a Prussian officer here to train. And von Steuben knows that sooner or later the gig is up with my doctored resume. But in the interim, he does such a good job. He doesn't ingratiate himself. He's not, he's not a sink fat with Washington. He goes out and he starts working. His first day in camp, he takes a tour. He's clomping into the dirty, filthy huts talking to enlisted men. You know, what are your hygiene habits? Where do you pee? Where do you go do a bowel movement? Do you know how to twist a bayonet once you stick it in? What, I mean, just nitty-gritty kind of stuff. Washington is so impressed. Washington gives Baron von Steuben his own personal guard of 50 men, adds another 50 men, and says to him, you train these 100 men and you send them out into the Continental Army as your sub-trainers. So every day, von Steuben would gather these 100 men in the parade grounds at Valley Forge, and the other soldiers really had nothing to do, so there's thousands of soldiers lining the parade grounds watching this. And he, like Frederick the Great, would get down into the muck and mire. He would get down on his rather ample belly to show them how to read terrain, to, to show them how, how, to, how to quick march, to show them how to, how to wheel in unison in battle. And soon, word starts getting back to George Washington. This guy's the real deal. Washington suspends all other training at Valley Forge. Anybody wants to train, they have to be one of von Steuben's sub-trainers. 
And what I really love about the man, he had no English either, which is not quite true because he had one word in English. God damn! That was the only word he knew in English. So Washington had assigned John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton, and sometimes somebody else, but they were the primary two, as von Steuben's translator because he spoke fluent French as well as German. And von Steuben was such a stickler, a Prussian stickler for detail. When someone would make a mistake during training, his face would get beat red. His double chin would get beat red. He'd start flailing his arms. He'd yell at, say, Hamilton was the translator that day in French, get over here and curse for me. (laughs) And then a stream, a spittle is coming out of his mouth as a stream of French and German oaths and curses are just emanating from this rather large man, you know, punctuated by the occasional goddamn in English, that by the time Hamilton or Lawrence or wherever the translator was would translate this, the American soldiers were doubled over in laughter. <laughs> they just loved this guy. He was one of them. He, he didn't have to ingratiate himself with Washington's junior officers. He would have dinners. Now, his rations were a little more than theirs, so he would invite lieutenants and captains and majors to the farmhouse where he was staying to share his dinner, his meager dinner, hickory nuts and whatever else happened to be on the plate that day. But on one condition, he realized that the soldiers were so ragged, he would say, you can only come to my dinners if you have no pants or if your pants are in rags. He called them his sans culottes dinners. (laughs) And many times that Washington would invite him to his headquarters for a dinner, he would charm the French-speaking officers' wives, the American officers' wives, with, you know, rival tales of the salons of Europe. It's telling that the very last official communique that Washington would write before resigning as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army in 1783 was to the Baron von Steuben, thanking him for turning his disparate militias into a well-oiled professional fighting machine. And this showed. I want to ask one final question, ask each of you to take a stab at it with your rhetorical bayonets. Mm-hmm. Why should readers that think they know the Revolutionary War, or those who maybe haven't read a single book about it, pick up Valley Forge as the heir to those soldiers 240 winters ago? And Tom Clavin, let's start with you. Well, I think because Valley Forge is, again, immediate name recognition but a lot of people don't know what the real story is. Uh, some people do think it's a battle. There was a, there's actually a battleground that's Valley Forge. and uh, Or some people just think, well, everybody just basically huddled under blankets for uh, several months and managed to survive, and nothing else happened. And I may have mentioned this earlier in the interview. My belief is, and Bob and I have discussed this, that so that six-month period from December 77 till June 78, when the Valley Forge encampment concluded with the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, which was the longest battle of the entire Revolutionary War, that was probably the most active six months and maybe the most significantly active six months of the Revolutionary War. You had the survival, the absolute survival of the Continental Army. You had Benjamin Franklin and his colleagues working out the alliance in, in Paris that brought the French in, which is an enormous turning point. You had the conspiracy to usurp and replace George Washington, which would have been disastrous. You had Washington really becoming a, a, a close to an iconic figure in Valley Forge because of the way he helped his men survive horrific conditions and then become this uh, you know, very exciting and dramatic action figure <laughs> during the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse where everything was in, going to shambles and, and there was a 
retreat going on. And Washington not only stemmed the retreat, but his men turned and fought beside him and stopped the British advance and counterattacked. So I think that people, I would like to see them come out of this book saying, I never knew how important Valley Forge was. I never knew to this day. Nobody ever taught me that Valley Forge was this important to the revolution and this important to our country right up until 2018. That would be my hope. Dean, I can't add anything to that. <laughs> you have Tom to. Said it, Tom said it all, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that spring, when the Continental Army, those who had not perished, you know, what makes me, what, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Those who had not perished, when they marched at a Valley Forge in quick step, by the way, having been taught by the Baron von Steuben, and met the British Army on the Sandy Plains in New Jersey near the small hamlet of Monmouth Courthouse, the British had what I call a Butch and Sundance moment. They were like, who are these guys? Look at them wheel into formation. Look at them separate. Look at them quick march. This is not the army that we brushed off our shoulders like lint at, uh, in the fall at the Battle of Brandywine Creek, at the Battle of Germantown, at the Massacre of Paoli. This looks like a real army here. And sure enough, even though that day, Washington had put Charles Lee, who we spoke about before, in charge of the attack. And he was bringing reinforcements. Washington was up in the rear. And when he got to the front lines and he saw that Charles Lee had called a retreat, the stoic, never show your emotions, George Washington exploded in front of his aides. His aides were shocked. His generals were shocked. He called Lee over. He cursed him out. He called him a poltroon. He dismissed him and sent him to the rear. And then he started galloping up and down the lines, turning, trying to turn his army. Turn. Will you fight? Will you fight? At, at one point, it was such a hot day, the white steed he was on collapsed beneath him and died of heat exhaustion. He grabbed the reins of another horse, and he kept riding back and forth. By this time, the British were counterattacking. He could see a swale a mile and a half away. It was a sea of red coming towards him. 10,000 redcoats had doffed their packs. They were in a bayonet charge. The British artillery was close enough. That grape shot was whizzing by Washington's head. A cannonball landed mere yards from him, splattered him and his horse with mud, and yet he kept galloping up and down the lines, his sword drawn, pointing towards the British and shouting, Will you fight? Will you fight for me? Will you fight for me today? And if you want to know the answer to that question, Dean, you're going to have to read the book. Thank you very much for this interview tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bob Drury and Tom Clavin, authors, co-authors of Valley Forge. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, bringing that alive. I can smell the gunpowder. I can feel the heat. The best of luck to you both. I hope that listeners will have caught some of this. Maybe while they were listening, just get the iPhone out there, buy your copy of Valley Forge. It was really a great conversation tonight. Thank you both so much for joining me. Dean, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dean. Again, the book is Valley Forge. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage, 
the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to the writing team of Bob Drury and Tom Clavin for joining us and for leading us inside the winter encampment of the Continental Army at Valley Forge. Visit them online at tomclavin.com and rfxdrury.com. You can also check out their author pages at Simon & Schuster. And while you're logged in, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, at Facebook, on Instagram, or you can always shoot an email to history at historyauthor.com. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.